but you know, thankfully for me, his gracious words and his really carefully curated hymns have done such a good job of retelling the Christmas story tonight that I'm a lot freer to consider it with you from maybe a little different angle than we've looked at it before. So let me ask you all in just these very brief moments that we have together to take this very beautiful and cherished story of the Lord's Nativity, uh, a story that we we know really all too well, uh, to look at it with fresh eyes and perhaps even with your sacred imagination to reflect on what it would have been like to have actually been there in Bethlehem some 2,021 years ago tonight. And maybe even more importantly, as we do that together, to consider the implications of what the mystery of Christ's incarnation means for us today and why it's a doctrine worth fighting for. And to get us there, I want us to, uh, to look at it. I'm going to call your attention to a short little scripture text, probably not one you'd find uh, on a top 10 list of Christmas Eve messages, but a vital one to be sure. It's just one verse, actually. And I hope you have your Bibles with you because this is coming from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the true and living God. Timothy says, without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body, vindicated by the Spirit, he was seen by angels, and announced to the nations he was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. And brothers and sisters, that's the word of the Lord for us this evening. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we ask you to enlighten us tonight in these very brief moments by your Holy Spirit that we may know the beauty of your Son and the truth of his word. Because we want to see Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. So you know that, uh, that tiny little line from Timothy is almost startling in its simplicity and, and candor. in proclaiming that Christ was revealed in a human body. But you know I think the straightforwardness of the text is intentional. Because it strips away as Pastor John just said. Any kind of gushy words and, and overly romanticized notions we may try to attach to our Lord's first advent in Bethlehem. And it lets us see it for the stark reality that it was. And that's important. It's important if that message is ever to have any real impact on our very real uh, and often, let's be honest, painfully real lives. Because it lets us know that our Lord Jesus has personally been where we are. He's been in our human experience and particularly in those moments of our lives that don't come to us, you know, all wrapped up like the gifts on Christmas morning. And those circumstances that we're called to face that lend themselves more often to moments of panic than visions of sugar plums. Because don't forget, regardless of how Christmas movies and major scenes try to portray the world that our Lord was born into, it was anything but idyllic. It was no children's pop-up book that looks and sounds a lot more like a fairy tale than a text from the scriptures. You know that place in the, the pop-up books that is, where the manger always looks warm and cozy? And the animals are always real cute and cuddly. The straw is perpetually clean. Right? And where Mary looks much more like a Disney princess than a young peasant girl. And, and we've done actually even worse in the depiction of our newborn Lord 
on Christmas card scenes and, and coffee table displays, all, all complete with uh, white-winged angels and, and twinkling stars and impressive-looking eastern kings. But brothers and sisters, the Son of God wasn't born to become a porcelain figure or a plastic saint. Now, the Bible says the word became flesh, real flesh, real crying, clinging, nap needing, spitting up human flesh, uh, born and, and laid in a feeding trough that no doubt had to be dumped over and cleaned out before it could be used. You see, that's the nature of our Christmas with our Jesus born in a messy barn in the midst of a messy world, a world a whole lot scarier and a whole lot dirtier than we sing about in our beloved Christmas carols. Right? It's a world of, of poverty and homelessness and political and spiritual turmoil, so much so that, as Pastor John said, within one year of being born, Jesus' parents were fleeing for their lives to Egypt. And yet, Jesus willingly came anyway. And he started right at the very bottom as a vulnerable baby, he went right to the beginning, right to the depths of human existence to experience everything that we experience. And here's why that matters. Here's why that is worth celebrating and singing about and sending Christmas cards to proclaim and buying gifts to commemorate and, and decking out our halls with evergreen boughs and pretty lights. Because, brothers and sisters, the very fact that Jesus became a man means that God is approachable. Right? It, it would be one thing to, to know that there was a transcendent God out there somewhere, but it's quite another to know that he is one to whom we can come to by the mere whisper of a prayer. Right? The Bible says that, that God the Father lives in unapproachable light, but Jesus' birth in Bethlehem means he's become accessible. He, he's not aloof to, to your troubles or, or to my anxieties. He can relate. He, he became, as the book of Hebrews says, for us, so, uh, someone that can sympathize with every weakness. And church, he's not play acting when he does it. He's not pretending to be one of us. He is one of us and without losing his divinity. And that matters, too, because the fact that Jesus remains God means that he can sustain God's wrath for our salvation. One author put it like this. He said, man is extinguished like a faintly burning candle at the breath of God's holy wrath. But at the cross, Christ, the God-man, can sustain the searing torture, not simply of nails and spear, but of divine judgment, because he himself was divine. That's why a night like tonight is so important to our salvation and so radically life-changing in its proclamation, because it means that God moved heaven and earth, even to the point of changing a part of his nature, to be a stand-in for you and me. If we identify in him, as Pastor John said. Because, brothers and sisters, everything that he did means nothing if he couldn't do it in your place. Uh, no, none of his work uh, can be worth anything unless it's applied to you, unless it's done for you and, and as you and representing you. Right? Good Friday and Easter Sunday are meaningless without Christmas morning. That's why Christmas is the bedrock foundation of our faith and the incarnation is the key to our salvation. And yet, as Pastor John said, we as Christians encounter uh, at Christmas, a story that's sadly all too familiar, right? We, we've all heard it all before. Right? Nothing new. We, we get it. And so we somehow can read scriptures and sing the great theology of Christmas carols and not even bat an eye or let our hearts skip a beat. And, and so we need reminders to stir our soul in humility and gratitude and worship of the God who would become like us in every respect. And so 
we need to come to this Christmas story with fresh eyes and a ready heart. Because the reality is, without him, there's a problem in our human soul that no amount of gifts or money or fame or, or sex or drugs or counseling or entertainment or fad diets or, or family or friends or, for heaven's sakes, Facebook can fix. Right? There's, there's a tension in our hearts that only can be tamed by humble faith in him whom the Bible says, and as we read, is the great mystery of our faith. That Christ that was revealed in a human body, vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by the angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and taken into glory. And church, shame on us if we don't shout it from the rooftops. And if we don't tell it on the mountain. And absolutely refuse to let anyone, anywhere, speak a word against it. And, and just to drive that point home, I want to close with just a re really quick real-life example that you may or may not know because uh, I want this one to stick in your mind. It's something a little different I talked to Vicki about doing, and she wasn't too sure about the illustration, but I want to cement the importance of the message of the Incarnation for you. And believe it or not, the illustration comes from the real-life story of the man who uh, later inspired the unfortunate fairy tale of Santa Claus, but whose actual story is so much more interesting and is forever linked to the doctrine of the Incarnation we've been looking at into a particular line in the Nicene Creed that we repeat concerning it every communion Sunday. And that man is a man by the name of Nicholas of Myra. A history tells us that the actual Saint Nick was born the beloved son of a wealthy family of Greek Christians uh, living in the Roman seaport of Patera in Asia Minor. And by most accounts, he was raised to live a life of privilege. But we also know from history that despite the temptation of wealth, he never let those riches get a hold of his heart because uh, very quickly after his parents passed, Nicholas gave away his whole inheritance to the poor. He took up a life of service in the church where his spiritual gifts were uh, very quickly taken note of and he eventually was elevated to the dignity of, of bishop in the region of Mara. Uh, but unlike the kind of uh, corrupt and, and uh, vacillating bishops, unfortunately, that are turned out of the Vatican today, his life was not fat and lazy. Uh, instead, for his uncompromising efforts to stand for the truth of the gospel, uh, he was relentlessly persecuted by the ruthless emperor Diocletian of Rome uh, and ultimately imprisoned for his faith. But God wasn't anywhere near done with him uh, because by divine providence, Nicholas was eventually released from prison. Diocletian was replaced by a convert to Christianity named Flavius Constantine, who in the year 325 convened the Council of Nicaea uh, in an effort that he said to have the church fathers present a unified faith across the entire Roman world and to find the nature of God so that everyone, everyone from the people at the top to the ordinary people like you and me could understand it based on scripture. And, and church, those guys knew their Bible. And they knew what they believed. And the, and the Council of Nicaea overwhelmingly affirmed the deity and the eternality of Jesus Christ. It spelled out the relationship of God the Father and God the Son of being of one substance. They affirmed the Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and were acknowledged as three co-equal and co-eternal persons. And everything was going along really, really well. Except for one rotten egg named Arius. When he had his chance to speak, Arius began preaching that Christ was not actually co-equal with the Father, but was instead a lesser creation. The first 
and greatest of creation, but a lesser one. And everybody listened as Arius made his argument for why Jesus was not fully God, but a, a lesser creature. And the whole council, including good old St. Nick, listened intensely. But this, this is where the story gets good, and this is the part I want you to remember. When good old St. Nick had heard as much of Arius' blasphemy as he could stand, Nicholas stood up. He strode purposefully across the hall in front of all the assembled dignitaries, and he punched Arius dead in the face. <laughs> now, you're probably thinking that was not exactly very saintly of him, and you'd be right. But that's how devoted he was to the honor of Christ and the vital importance of the incarnation that we see in Christmas Eve. And, and I don't, don't mishear me. I'm not advocating violence or punching folks at random. But, you know, when I look around at myself and at fellow Christians, what I often see is an absolute lack of passion to even speak up about our faith and the true meaning of Christmas, much less knock somebody out for it. But, you know, more Christians today, and I include myself in this, followed Nicholas's ultimate pious example. I think the Christian world would look a whole lot different than it does, don't you? Uh, now, again, I'm not saying we should physically fight everyone who disagrees with us about the reality of Christ. But what I am saying is we should hold on to our beliefs and on to our faiths as strongly uh, as the church did in the days of Nicholas and be willing to fight for it. And, you know, even if we aren't ever called to have to do that exactly, that we at least should live it out. We should at least be willing to live out that faith in active service to God uh, like Nicholas did in the council halls of Nicaea, uh, where the old Christmas rhyme says that all through that house, not a creature was stirring when Arius got decked in the mouth. <laughs> and shocked to the rafters, bishops paused watching Arius and Santa Claus. Uh, one claimed equality with God Christ had not. Now the other said, that's a heretical thought. And off with his right hook goes St. Nick. Down falls Arius the heretic. I think that's a little more catchy than the regular song. But. But when the arguments were over, the council rejected Arius and all those substandard beliefs. And, and he, they drew up a statement at Nicaea, a statement of faith we know is the Nicaean Creed, which I want us to share together as we close out, that among other things affirms the reality and the divinity of our Lord. And this is what it says. Let's share it together. Our one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven, as was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And brothers and sisters, this is Christmas. If you thought it was anything else, anything besides this, tonight is the night. Repent and believe the gospel of the Christ of Christmas and imitate the saints in every age who honor this sacred silent night. And we're going to do that as we close by singing silent night. So I'm going to invite the ushers uh, that are going to come down to, to pass the lights of the candles and maybe 
Could we just play through it through it one time while everybody gets the, the lights lit and then we'll, then we'll sing together. So we're going to invite the ushers to come down and, and uh, let's pass around symbolically the light of the gospel and we'll close out by singing the silent night.
Brothers and sisters, take this light of the gospel with you in your hearts to everywhere you go this Christmas season. And until we're together again, stand for the Lord's blessing. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord God lift up the light of his countenance and give you peace. Go out now to love and serve the Lord. Merry Christmas.